0: All right, we're going to be ooh, in the book of Acts, uh, we, where we've been for a while, and uh, you can, there should be a sheet on your table, if you don't have a Bible, with the entire passage there. We are in one chapter. I gave Jonathan Lyle the uh, the, whole, the whole two chapters. I've taught on two also, but I uh, gave him, gave myself one here, Acts 25, and it's, it's, it's going to be cool. We're going we're gonna to pull some cool applications out of Acts 25, so you can get that sheet out. But uh, how many of you have ever, raise your hand, if you've ever heard of William Wilberforce? Who's heard of William Raise your hands high, I'd love to see. Okay, so it's like maybe half of you have heard, For those that haven't, um, he was the guy that was probably the most instrumental in abolishing slavery in England. We're going to watch a Museum of the Bible, it's like three minutes, clip of his life, It's not the most flashiest clip in the world, but I think you'll be okay. It's three minutes in his life, and then I want to kind of help pull out something from his life that's going to talk to us about today. So go ahead and show that clip up there. All right, so that was just a short little clip about William Wilberforce's life, but what I want to help help you think about is in this idea of the upside-down kingdom is that's the kingdom that William Wilberforce was living in, and in living in that kingdom, he was kind of the odd man out. In England because here's the thing back then especially and it is still now but the Church of England was the government-sponsored church it's not like here and the government-sponsored church while they may not have outwardly said we're we're for slavery they've gone back and seen some of the different records and look most people's history has bad things in it that are struggle but in part of their history they were tied to some things of slavery So here's the thing. William Wilberforce has the Church of England that probably doesn't really like him because he's going to be bringing stuff out uh, from God's word that says slavery is not good. Then he's got the English parliament on the other side that's probably not really liking him either. Not even probably. They for sure don't like him because there's many in there that want to keep slavery going. So he's stuck in the middle. He's in that tension. The whole point of today is talking about When we live in the kingdom of God, we will live in a tension of the upside down kingdom. We are not understood by the religious world or the outside world. And that's where William Wilberforce found himself. Not understood by the religious world and not understood by the outside culture. And he lived in that kind of tension. Have you ever felt like this? A little bit? I know a guy that felt like this. Name was Jesus. felt just like that. Think about it. All the religious the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, last week reference. Um, they, they didn't like him, they couldn't stand him. they wanted to kill him. and then his, his own people in the world thought he was just weird, so they didn't like him. I th- think of another guy who're going to talk about today, Paul, same way we're going to talk more about him. Guy yeah, even Joseph. His own brothers couldn't stand him. But the, rel- the religious people of the world, they didn't understand him. So all these different people in the Bible, they lived in this tension, this tension of the upside down kingdom. So if you've ever felt like this, that in one sense, you feel like you don't really fit anywhere. You know, people that are religious don't really get you because you're trying to live by the Holy Spirit guiding you. You don't fit into their mold, but the outside world they don't really know what to do with you because you don't really fit into their mold, And the only place that you really fit in is amongst Christians. And so this is the tension of the upside down kingdom. And this is what Paul felt like, living in that tension in his life. And so open up to Acts chapter 25, or it's in front of you on your sheet. Now, let's go back real quick and think about this. Acts 24, 27 uh, is one of the sides we got there. It says, just to remember back from last week, because Jonathan set us up perfectly to come into this week. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded. So Felix was kind of the Roman governor of the area of Jerusalem and, and, and the, in the, uh, the, sort of in Israel. Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So remember, Jonathan left off saying this idea of waiting, none of us like waiting. But God is in the process. God is okay with the waiting that happens in our lives. So he's left in prison for two years. And the interesting thing is that Felix was really looking out for his, his own, only for his own good when he leaves Paul in prison. And so here's my question, just an interesting question. I was like, how did he get left in prison for two years as a Roman citizen? Felix knew he was a Roman citizen. How did he get let, left in there for two years with no trial? They had nothing to even convict him of. But he was left in there. And sometimes, that's what happens in life sometimes. We don't always fully understand everything. But what we're going to see today is, as we live in that tension, is that God is weaving a plan throughout the whole story. So we pick up uh, in in Acts 25, and we're going to walk through it. So the first two verses say, Three days after arriving in the province, Festus, this is kind of the new Roman governor of the area, he went up. From Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, Caesarea is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Beautiful place. Uh, Been there. It was really cool because it helps me get a really good picture of the Bible. But they loved all the Roman governors. They loved being in Caesarea. It was right by the sea, which means there was they didn't have air conditioning back then, by the way. So it felt really good being by the ocean because there was always a really nice breeze blowing through. So that's where they had kind of built the. Uh, that's why it gets the name Caesarea for Caesar. That's where the Caesars would live. The rulers would live in that, in that Roman time there in Israel. So it says that he went up because you actually had to travel uphill to get to Jerusalem. So soon after getting there, he goes to Jerusalem because although he likes Caesarea because it's really nice there, he knows that Jerusalem is really the seat of where everything is happening kind of in the, in the world of Israel at that time. So it says in verse two, where the chief priest and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and, pre- and presented the charges against Paul. Now, history will tell you, will tell you that Festus is actually somewhat of a, a favorable ruler in this time. They, they considered him to rule well. I uh, read that in the, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And then in verse three, it says, they requested, this is the, the Jewish leaders, as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Uh, And as I was studying over this text, sometimes it's cool to read it in a different version. So I was reading it in the message, which is a very paraphrased version of the Bible, but it brought out a cool word that I haven't heard in a long time. And that word was vendetta. When's the last time you heard someone say the word vendetta, it's been a long time. Do you guys even know what vendetta means? Um, It means they, they had something against Paul. The Jews had this vendetta against Paul. It's been two years Two years since we last hear from what happened to Paul. You know, for us, it's only been a week since we read chapter 24, and now we're in chapter 25. But in the real timeline, it had been two years. And I'm telling you, these Jews, these religious leaders, they had not forgotten about Paul, and they still wanted him dead. But their case was still so weak They had nothing against Paul. Because at this point, the Old Testament law is not ruling. Really, the Roman law is the top law here. So they know that they have nothing really against Paul. So what are they hoping to do again? They're hoping the same thing always. They're hoping to ambush him. They're like, maybe Festus will let him come back. We'll meet him on the road. We'll beat him. We'll kill him. Done and over. Nobody knows about it. We're good. Then we read in verse four and five. It says, but Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. So, once again, once again, God uses unconventional people to do his will. God is using Festus, this Roman governor, who doesn't believe in Jesus, isn't a Christian, isn't probably even very religious uses him to protect Paul. The Roman governor's like, hey, you know what? If you wanna come, why don't you come with me to Jerusalem? We'll do it there. We'll have the case there. And, and Paul knew, we're gonna learn a little bit. Paul knew that he didn't wanna to go to Jerusalem because of what would happen there. So then we pick up in verse six. It says, after spending eight or 10 days with them, Festus, uh, Festus went down to Caesarea. And the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. And when Paul, verse seven, when Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove any of them. You know, it's kind of interesting. I wonder as Luke writes this, you know, Luke was a very detailed writer. I've said that many times as the author. That's what's so cool about the book of Acts is how detailed it is. And I wonder if Luke, because he traveled with Paul quite often, I wonder if he was an eyewitness to this, that he was actually watching this. Because in Jerusalem, there was actually like a seat. It was called the judgment seat. You know, we talk about in Revelation, talks about the judgment seat of Christ, when God will kind of judge the whole world and he'll, he'll, uh, he'll judge sin. Well, that, some of that that kind of language comes from this Roman time period. These guys would go sit kind of in like the town square. The governor would sit there and he would actually rule in that place. He would sit on the judgment seat and he would make judgments there. So he's coming, very formal. He convenes the court and he's coming to make judgments. And they bring these very, very serious uh, charges against Paul. So Festus, he learns about it That he, Paul's been in jail for two years. He learns from Felix that, man, this guy's done some serious, Festus is probably thinking this guy must've done some serious stuff if he's been in jail for two years. Now let's go back to remember, because this is going to help us understand the tension of living in the upside down kingdom. If we go back to chapter 24, we're going to learn about what they said that Paul did. Here's some of the things that it said. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. So this is the, the Jewish, the Pharisees uh, coming before Felix at this point, the previous Roman governor. They're like, hey, we, we, you know, this is what John talked about last week. We just want to tell you one more thing. It says, we found this man a plague. You know, one of the things I was thinking last week, I'm like, what if you said that to your brother or sister? You're such a plague. That would kind of be like, that's rough. They called it, they said, this man is a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And it keeps going. If you can go to the, to the next slide. Uh, and he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining himself, yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So here's what they accused him of. One, they just accused him of being a plague, which I don't really think you can back that up with facts, but they accused him of being a plague. Then they accuse him of stirring up riots. Now, if, if you've been tragging with us through the book of Acts, what you know is Paul never stirred up the riots. Everybody else stirred up the riots. Sure, they didn't like some of the things he's saying, but they're the ones that stirred up the riots. Number two is it says that he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Jonathan talked about this last week, right? They're, they were trying to set him apart as kind of this religious weirdo, this religious freak. But here's the thing. When the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jewish time told this to the Roman governor Felix, the Roman governor's like, we don't care. This is your thing. Like bring us something that we care about. We don't care about this. And lastly, it said that he tried to, tried to profane the temple, which that was back in chapters 23 and 24. If you go back and read that, you'll know that he actually did the exact opposite. He went to purify himself in the temple. To be pure. So every single thing that they bring to Paul against Paul is not true. They bring these false accusations against him. Let's pick up in verse 8. Then Paul made his defense, very simple defense. He says, I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Like, he makes it so simple. He's like, I haven't done anything, I haven't broken any of the Jewish Old Testament laws. Uh, I haven't done anything against the temple. Like we said, he actually purified himself so he could go in the temple. They accused him of bringing a non-Jew in the temple, which he didn't do. And he says, I haven't even done anything against Caesar. You know, Paul wants Festus to know that he has done nothing. Then we pick up in verse nine. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? So, I was kind of interested, and it doesn't necessarily tell us, I was kind of interested, did Festus know about the plot by the Jews? You know, as you're kind of reading this, we don't know every single detail. I'm kind of wondering, did, did he know about the plot? Did he not? I don't think he did, because as we kind of read more, it seems that he didn't really know about it. But really, he was following the Roman law of jurisdiction, right? He's like, okay, where did this happen? Okay, this happened in Jerusalem, Maybe we should go back there and try him there. You know, some of the, the application point for this, from this this part of the chapter is, if you're like me, if you're like me, you want people, you want the government, you want culture to be in your favor. I mean, that's kind of my natural tendency. I want people to like me. I want people to that favor in people's eyes. I, I want the government to, to make laws that are within the things that I believe are true from God's word. You know, I want culture to do things that are true from, from God's word and the things that I believe. And you know what? There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but you're wanting and I'm wanting the world to be like it was when God first created it and there was no sin. But there's sin in this world. It's broken. And God has place us on this earth, to be people of redemption, to be redeemed and bring redemption to people, to share hope and truth. But the religious people have brought all kinds of false accusations against Paul. And the Roman government says, we don't even, we don't even really care what you have to say. And that's the tension of living in the upside down kingdom. We cannot expect the world to do us any favors. And that is not supposed to be an us versus them mentality. Don't take it like that. Because I think we can often do that. We can all of a sudden become like, well, it's, it's us Christians versus the world. No, that's not it. But if we look here, what does Festus do? Festus says, I want to do the Jews a favor. Well, why does he want to do the Jews a favor? Well, because he wants to do himself a favor and make things easier on himself. And so for us, we cannot expect the world to do us any favors. Why? Because what we're expecting is the world to be like it was when God first created it and there was no sin. This does not mean we don't fight for God's truth because we know that God's truth is what will actually help human flourishing. Think about William Wilberforce. What did he fight for? Human flourishing. He fought he fought to end slavery. Because he was, it was based out of God's truth and God's word. And that is what he is, what he fought for. So that is exactly what we should fight for. Yet in the midst of living in this world and living for God's truth, we must live with the reality that the world is not going to and does not owe us any favors. Even in the midst of living in the tension of the upside down kingdom, we can be led by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus. And that's what it all comes down to is are you allowing the main character of your life, who is supposed to be the main character, which is the Holy Spirit, to lead you? And so we learned that uh, Festus really doesn't know how to handle this. He's like, uh, what do I do? Kind of want to do the Jews a favor. I don't really understand this. This doesn't, this doesn't really make sense. So let's look at verse 10. Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. So this is, this is the defense that Paul, that Paul makes um, when he says, are you willing to go to Jerusalem? Paul answers, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I, don't not, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. And then he says, with an exclamation point, I appeal to Caesar. So Paul makes the logical point that he has done nothing and clearly knows that he's been sitting in jail for two years with no charge against him. Now let's think about a couple of things of why Paul says, I don't wanna go to Jerusalem. One, I doubt that Paul has forgot about the 40 people that took an oath to kill him. Now, like Jonathan said, if they truly followed their oath, they're dead at this point. But I have a feeling they didn't. They, they gave it up and they ate because that was what they said. They said, we're not gonna eat or drink until we kill Paul. I think they gave that up. But I doubt Paul's forgot about them. He's like, there's 40 people out there that still wanna kill me. Paul had already sat in jail for two years. I think part of Paul, Paul's a little bit of an antsy guy. He's like, I'm ready for the next thing. I'm ready to fight the next person. And I think Paul was like, I'm ready to move on from here. I don't want to go back up to Jerusalem. I want to go to where God's calling me, which he knew was Rome. He knew God was calling him Rome. Remember, God gave him that vision that he would go to Rome. He also knew that if he went to Jerusalem, the trial wasn't going to be fair. He knew it would be stacked against him. He actually knew that within the Roman government, them doing the trial was actually more fair. So this is kind of like Paul appealing to the Supreme Court. He's like, I appeal to the Supreme Court. I want to go to the highest level here. And it's interesting. Why did, you know, it says that, uh, we'll go a little bit further. It says uh, in verses 12, after Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go. So Festus kind of gets together with his guys. They talk about it and they're like, okay, we're going to let you go to Caesar. I'm interested to know why they ultimately let him do that. Uh, Luke doesn't really tell us exactly why. It may be that the Roman law was that if someone said that, they had to let them go to take their case all the way to the top. Now, in our in our country, in the Supreme Court, they don't have to take every case that comes to them. They get to decide what cases they want to take. So that might be what happened. Now, by the way, this is interesting, kind of. The person that was in charge that was the emperor at this time was Nero. Now, if you know anything about Nero, he was not the most favorable guy towards Christians. Now, from what we understand about history, he wasn't as brutal towards Christians as he was later. But even so, I'm not sure that he was exactly loving towards Christians. And so I just wanna read this to you real quick and it's gonna be on the screens, but this is what the message said to paraphrase Paul's response to Festus when Festus asked him if he wants to go up to Jerusalem. Paul answered, I'm standing at this moment before Caesar's bar of justice, the judgment seat, where I have a perfect right to stand and I'm gonna keep standing here. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews and you know it as well as I do. I've committed a crime. If I've committed a crime and deserve death, name the day, I can face it. But if there's nothing to their accusations and you know there isn't, nobody can force me to go along with their nonsense. We've fooled around here long enough. I appeal to Caesar. This is kind of Paul's words I wanna give you just three application points before we go into our table time. Number one is, we see from Paul's life, God is absolutely sovereign and will use whatever means to accomplish his will, right? We see a couple different things here. We see one, Festus is the one, just like Felix, someone that's not a follower of Christ, protects Paul. God will use whatever means necessary. God is going to use the Roman government ultimately, to bring in their process, to bring the gospel to many people. The way they do the law, that's actually gonna allow the gospel to go out. God used unconventional people to do his will. Number two is God's timing is perfect. God allows both what we see as good and what we see as difficult in his perfect timing. It's easy for us to look back and say, oh man, two years of jail? Yeah, I mean, God's timing is a little bit different than ours. And as we live in this tension, the upside down kingdom, we've, we've got to take these principles into mind that God's absolutely sovereign. And he'll use whatever means necessary to accomplish his will. That God's timing is perfect. He doesn't always work on our timing as we live in the tension. And lastly, to summarize, that the culture will many times not be for God's truth, but we can still be like Jesus in the midst of it the world we we shouldn't expect any favors from the world but the cool thing is it's not us against them it's jesus in us going out into the world and that's what paul's doing he's going out into the world with the message of christ to live it out so a couple questions give you uh about five minutes to uh, to talk about these two questions so go ahead all right i'm gonna finish up your Conversation, we're going to uh, jump back in here, S- finish up kind of the last, last part of this chapter. So now Festus has said, Paul, do you want to go back to Jerusalem? Paul's like, no, I don't want to go. I appeal, I appeal to Caesar. So then we pick up in verse 13. It says, a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Now we got to understand who these people are. So Agrippa is Herod Agrippa. This is uh, from the Herodian family, from the king, the line of the kings of King Herod. So uh, he is a uh, he is kind of a uh, culturally well, culturally is his Herod it, his heritage is from the Jews. So he's he's kind of one of their kings. So it's kind of this odd, like the Romans would come in and they'd kind of allow people to still have their culture, but they'd sort of rule over top of them. And so Herod's, uh, this Herod Agrippa, he's about 30, age, 30 years of age, and he's a, a ruler of the territories, kind of northeast Palestine. So if Israel's here, it's kind of like over here. He's kind of the ruler there. And so he had become a friend of the Romans and the imperial family. And why did he do that? Well, it awarded him privilege, of being able to appoint the different Jewish leaders, the different high priests that he wanted to. It gave him, uh, he was head over the temple treasury. So he got money for there. So basically he became friends with the Romans because it did him a favor. So him and then Bernice is actually his sister who is kind of his wife. So he has this incestuous relationship with uh, Bernice. So we pick up, just so you know, that's kind of the background of who these guys are. And the big reason of why they would come is because I know it's kinda weird. <laughs> I guess I said it so plainly and matter-of-factly, but it is a little weird. Get all your laughs out, are you good? Okay. Um the reason that 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 they came, again, they were kinda being with this new governor, Festus, but also we're gonna find in just a minute that a big a big helpful thing for Festus is that King Agrippa and Bernice are going to be able to hear Paul's, hear Paul talk about it and help Festus understand kind of what's going on here. So let's pick back up in verse 14. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. Actually, I kind of appreciate Festus. I feel like Festus is actually like, I'm trying to understand this whole situation. I actually want to rule well. And he said, There is a man whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem... The chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. So condemned is like condemned to death. Like he is saying, like these guys brought such heavy charges that he should be killed, that we should kill him. I told them that it's not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they had faced their accusers and have an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. So while the Roman government was not exactly the most kind people in the entire world, they also had a decent, somewhat of a decent system of justice when they wanted to. Because it's saying, hey, the accuser and the accused should actually meet people. Basically, if you were a Roman citizen, they were like, you, you deserve this. For the, the person being accused to actually face his accusers. Verse 17, when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. That would be Paul. 18, when his accusers got, got up to speak, they didn't charge him with anything of the crimes I had expected, and said so they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who had claimed to be alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. So, I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stay in trial on these charges, but when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to caesar now let's look at a a couple of different things here. I mean I think Festus actually tells the truth to Agrippa he's like here's kind of the story here's what's happened these these Pharisees, these religious leaders, these other Jews, men of high standing in the Jewish they bring all these charges against him. And he's like, look, I listened to them all and none of them really seem to hold any merit here. Uh, and then Festus uh, realizes what he thought would be some really big charge is really nothing. That the, the Jews had just made up a lot of these things. He doesn't say this, but because they're fearful of losing their power and their control. Now, Here's something I wanna help you pull from this as we kind of live in this tension of the upside down kingdom. While people are most likely not right in your face like they are with Paul, the Jews are here with Paul, if it can feel like the news, media, social media, the headlines are declaring how hateful Christians are. Now, this isn't an exact perfect example here, but every once in a while, I, I do enjoy, I, I listen to NPR, uh, so I was listening to NPR. Anybody ever listen to NPR? I'm old, cool, awesome, only old people, great, except for a couple young guys. No one does that? So is that what you said? Oh, you know what it is, okay. Uh, so uh, it's not Christian radio, let's just put it that way. And they were, had a, a piece on there, uh, a story on there, and it was this uh, lady who was a, a reporter, and she was tasked to go to a pro-life uh, rally. And so she said she, she came in and she was gonna spend like time there and get to know the people and was really interviewing them. And so she kind of tells the stories of the different people at the pro-life rally that she was talking to. And then at the end of the piece, she's like, at the end of the story, she's like, I, I can't ever really view these people the same. She's like, because I got to know them. And I realized that, They weren't as evil as I thought. And guess what? The people, most of the people on the other side that we don't always agree with, they're not as bad as you think either. And that's living in the tension of the upside down kingdom. Look, there's probably some on the quote unquote Christian side that are kind of jacked up. And there's some on the other side that aren't Christian that are kind of jacked up. But a lot of people in one sense are right in the middle. And it's not allowing the headlines and emotions to overcome you. Are you willing to talk to people and actually get to know them and actually get to know their story and see what's going on? That doesn't mean you shy away from truth, no. But when you have a one-on-one conversation with someone and you can actually hear their story, man, that makes things completely different. Don't allow the headlines and the emotions to overcome you. The truth is that many times, just like Paul the charges against Christians aren't true. Often the headlines are to make Christians look bad. And oftentimes on the other side, Christians want to make headlines to look other people look bad or people that are religious to make other people look bad. But if someone sat down and talked with the person on the other side, they would likely find out that person is not as hateful as they, saw, as they thought. And so living in that tension is not allowing the headlines and the emotions to overcome us. And you know what the real, the real issue, the real issue, what was it? It was about this dead guy that Paul said was alive. You wanna argue with someone about something? I'm not saying argue. But I saying you wanna make something a point that you're willing to defend? Make it about Jesus, because think about this. There is a lot of other things that people deal with in life. There is a lot of outside things. There is a lot of circumstances that people have in their lives that we need to be willing to listen to and walk them through, don't get me wrong, there is a ton of things. But ultimately what it comes down to is if Jesus is truly alive, if he's really alive, if he really died on a cross and he rose again on three days, then everything that he said is true. That he redeems, that he's sitting on the throne, that he's alive. And that was the real point of what Paul said was talking about so we need to address the different issues that people are talking about but ultimately the real issue that we can we can be willing to to die on is that Jesus Christ was dead but he's alive now and so Festus is at a loss he doesn't know what to do he doesn't know how to handle this case and so here's here's what you read and in verse 22 then Agrippa said to Festus I would like to hear the man myself and he replied tomorrow you will hear him Verse 23, the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Don't, Don't miss the circumstance here. Don't miss what Luke's setting up. Luke is setting up. There's this guy, Paul, who has been in jail for two years And there's all, Agrippa and Bernice are coming in with all the pomp and circumstance, but there's just Paul who's just been in jail. And guess what? Paul once was one of those religious leaders that had the same pomp and circumstance. And Luke is setting up this story for you to understand what is happening at this moment. And the book of Acts is showing you how the gospel is going into all places. And so so Agrippa, they come in and there's, there's such this, this uh, comparison going on here. And then Festus said, King Agrippa, all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. So just so stop there for a second. Do You realize what's happening here. Nothing, Paul hasn't been condemned. There's nothing that they have against him. And yet he has the viewing of the governor, the basically the, the king of the local area. And it would be that there was, it said there was three cohorts there. So there's three military officials that were in charge of a thousand troops. Do you get it? What's happening? All the things that seem so bad, God is setting up this opportunity for Paul to be able to share with him. Why did, why did they care? As all Paul was talking about was a dead guy who's raised again. And yet he's got the viewing of all these people. Do you see how God's sovereign hand works in all things, I need to be reminded of that. The God's sovereign hand is working in all things. And so picking up in verse uh, 25, no, yes, 25, I found he had done nothing deserving death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you and especially before you, King Grippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. So I think at this point, I think Fessis is a little like, well, we said that we'd take him to Rome, but we got nothing to send him. And I'm about to look really stupid. If I send this guy to Rome, I'm about to look really silly. I just said stupid. My son's in the back. I should not say stupid, okay? Silly. <laughs> Edit that out, Dennis, later. Do not let that be on there. All of a sudden, my son went. <laughs> Don't look back at him, though. Don't look back at him. Sorry. Uh, He did such a silly thing. And he's like, we can't send send him to Rome without any charges against him. So he's hoping that Agrippa is going to have a really good reason and kind of understand what's happening here. So he has a good reason to send him to Caesar. So there's a spiritual battle going on here. If we live in the upside down kingdom as a Christian, there's a spiritual world that we don't see. It doesn't make sense that the Jews are attacking Paul and the Romans don't know what to do with him. There's no logical sense there. And this is being a follower of Christ is that we will live in this tension in the upside down kingdom. There will always be tension, but the reality is is that the Holy Spirit is our helper to live in that tension as we walk day in and day out with our friends and our school, at our jobs and our homes, with our family, all the tension that we'll live in And what we need more than anything is like Paul. For him to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I am preaching this to myself. Because I don't like living in the tension. I want comfort. I want ease. I want to know that I got it all under control. And yet in the midst of it all, Jesus says, abide with me. Walk with me. There is no way you can make it through living in the tension in the upside down world. Without abiding with Jesus. Jesus. This is what it will look like to live in the upside-down kingdom. Religious people want to understand you, and the world will be confused about you. Why? Because you're just like Jesus. It's exactly what he was like. Just like him. So, in two Sundays, we don't have church next Sunday, the following Sunday, the one, the only, Danny Davis, will be bringing to you Acts chapter 26, where we get to hear what Paul ends up sharing further with Agrippa Bernice and Festus I'm going to give you about three minutes to answer some questions and then I'm going to come up and close it go ahead all right let me uh let me close it up here for you just a couple last kind of application points to bring it together and then uh, Cameron's got a last couple things for us but one is just embracing the tension like if you embrace the tension all of a sudden the fear from it can go away right? The fear we have, of, oh, what are my friends saying? What are going to people, what are people going to think? Like when we embrace that tension, all of a sudden I'm like, okay, it's going to happen. It's going to be real. I can walk through it. There's a helper to help me walk through. Number two in, number two, is living in the tension in God's kingdom, in the upside down kingdom. You're in good company. You're not alone. You are surrounded, as Hebrew says, by a great cloud of witnesses that also lived in that tension. And at times you may look odd, to both the religious people and to the outside world. And if what you're doing lines up with Scripture, then you're probably doing the right thing as you look both, as you look weird to both. God is using you in the midst of the tension. I can only encourage you, like I'm encouraging myself, to abide in Jesus day in and day out.